to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. We are back. This is episode number eight. Today, we have on the show myself, Carlisa Campos, and Josh. Hello, everyone. That was Josh Russell and Olive Power. Hello. And also Brian Lyles. Hello. Olive, this is your first time, and I didn't even give you a heads up, but tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. Yeah, sure. So I'm based in the UK. I joined VMware as part of the Heptio acquisition, which I joined Heptio way back last year in October. So the acquisition happened pretty quickly for me. Before that, I was at Red Hat working on some of their cloud management tooling and a bit of OpenShift as well. And before that, I worked with HP and Fujitsu. I kind of work in enterprise management a lot. So, you know, things like desired state and automation are kind of things that have followed me around through most of my career. So, you know, coming in here to VMware and working in the cloud native applications business unit is kind of a good fit for me. I'm a mom of two and I'm based in the UK, which I have to point out currently undergoing a heat wave. So we've had about like three weeks of 25 to 30 degrees, which is warm, very warm for us. So everybody's in a great mood. And you have a science background, right? Yeah, I studied chemistry in university, and then I went on to do a PhD in cancer research. So I was trying to figure out ways where we could predict how different people were going to respond to radiation treatment, and then with a view to tailoring everybody's treatment to make it unique for them, rather than giving the same treatment to different people who presented with the same disease, but were responding very, very different. So yeah, that was really, really interesting. Why do you grow at VMware? So I'm a cloud native architect. So I help customers predominantly focus on their Kubernetes platforms and how to build them either from scratch or to help them get more production ready, depending on where they are in their Kubernetes journey. It's been a really exciting part of being part of Heptio and following through into the VMware acquisition. We're going to speak to customers a lot, of, you know, at very exciting times for them. You know, they're kind of embarking on their Kubernetes journey, a lot of them. We're with them from the start and every step of the way. So that's really rewarding and exciting. So let me pick up on that thread, actually, because one thing that I love about this group, for me, because I don't get to do that, you all meet customers and you know what they are doing, you get that knowledge firsthand. What would you say the percentage of the clients that you see have a disaster and recovery strategy, which by the way, is the topic of today's show? I speak to customers a lot. And as I mentioned earlier, there, a lot of them are like in different stages of their journey in terms of automation, in terms of infrastructures of code, in terms of where they want to go for their next platform. But there generally is a, in the room a team that is responsible for backup and recovery. And that's generally sort of leads into the storage team, really, because um, you're, you're trying to backup state predominantly. Um, and so when we're speaking to customers, we'll have the automation people in the room, we'll have the developers in the room, and we'll have the storage people in the room. And they're the ones that are primarily, out of those three sort of folks I've mentioned, they're the ones that are primarily concerned about 
backup, you know, how to back up their data, how to restore it in a way that satisfies the SLAs or the time to get your systems back online in a timely manner. So they're the most concerned with that. I think it's interesting because it's almost scary how many of our customers don't actually have a disaster recovery strategy of any sort. And, and I think it's oftentimes just based on the maturity of the platform. You know, a lot of the applications and such, they're worried about downtime, but not necessarily like it's going to devastate the business in a lot of these apps. You know, and I'm not trying to say that people don't run mission-critical apps on things like Kubernetes. It's just a lot of people are very new and they're just kind of ramping up. It's a really complicated thing that we work with our customers on. And, and there's so many like layers to this, and I'm sure layers that we'll get into. There's things like disaster recovery of the actual platform. If Kubernetes, as an example, goes down, getting it back up backing up its data store that we call etcd. There's obviously like the applications disaster recovery. If a cluster of some sort goes down, be it Kubernetes or otherwise, shifting some CI system and redeploying that into some B cluster to bring it back up, right? And then to Olive's point, when it, she said it all comes back to storage, yeah, I mean, that's where it gets extremely complicated. So um, when, well, at least in my mind, it's complicated for me, I should say. When you're thinking about, okay, I'm running this Postgres as a service thing, on this cluster, you know, it's, it's not that simple to just move the app from cluster A to cluster B anymore. I have to consider like, what do I do with the data? How do I make sure I don't lose that? And, and that's a pretty complicated question to answer. I think a lot of the storage providers and vendors playing in that storage space are kind of looking at, you know, novel ways to solve that and have adapted their current thinking. Maybe that was maybe slightly older thinking to newer ways of interacting with Kubernetes cluster to provide that ongoing replication of data around different systems outside of the Kubernetes cluster and then allowing it to be ported back in when the Kubernetes cluster, if we're talking about Kubernetes in this instance as a platform, porting that data back in. And that there's a lot of vendors playing that space. So it's, it's kind of an exciting space really to see how you know, different people are figuring out how to back up distributed systems in a reliable manner. Because different people want different levels of backup. And because of the microservices nature of the cloud native architectures that we predominantly deal with, your application is not just one thing anymore. And certain parts of that application need to be recovered fairly quickly and other parts don't need to be recovered that quickly. So it's all about functionality ultimately that your end customers or your end users see. So if you think about it visually as like a banking application, for example, where if you're looking at things like, so the customer is interacting with that and they can check their financial details and they can check the current status of their account and they're two different services but the actual service to transfer money into their account is down it's still a pretty functional system to the end user but in the background obviously systems are in place to recover that transfer of money functionality but it's not detrimental to your business if that's down so there'll be different SLAs and different objectives in terms of recovery in terms of the amount of time that it takes for you to restore. So all of that has to be factored in into disaster recovery plans. And it's up to the company and we can help as much as possible for them to figure out which bits of the application and which bits of your business need to conform to certain SLAs in terms of recovery. Because different bits will have different standards and different times in and around that space. So it's a complicated thing. It definitely is. I want to take a step back and unpack this term disaster recovery because I can assure you careers and fortunes have been made on helping people get this right. Before we get super deep into this, what's a disaster? And then what's a recovery for that? Have you thought about that at a fundamental level? Just for me, if we would kind of take it at face value, so like a physical disaster, they can be physical ones or software-based ones. 
But physical ones can be like, you know, earthquakes or floodings, fires, things like that, that are happening either in your region or can be fairly widespread across the area that you're in or software, you know, cyber attacks that are perhaps specific to your own internal systems, like your system has been compromised. So that's fairly local to you. So there's two different design strategies there. You know, physical disaster, you have to have a recovery plan that that is outside of that physical boundary that you can recover your system from somewhere that's not affected by that physical disaster. So for the recovery from in terms of software, in terms of your system has been compromised, then the recovery from that is different. I'm not an expert on cyber attacks and vulnerabilities, but the recovery from there, for companies trying to recover from that, they plan for it as much as possible. So they down their systems and try and get patches and fixes to them as quickly as possible and spin the system back up. I'm understanding what you're saying. I'm I'm trying to unpack it for those of us listening who don't really understand it. So I'm going to go through what you said and we'll unpack it a little bit. So physical, for my assumption is, we're running workloads, let's say we're just going to say in a cloud, not on-premise. We're running workloads in, let's say, AWS. And in the United States, we can take care of um, local diversity by running in east and west regions. And also, we can take care of local diversity by running in availability zones within a region because AWS is guaranteed that AZ1 and AZ3 have different network connections, are not in the same building, and things like that. Would you agree? Do you see that? I mean, this is for everyone out there. I'm going to go from super high level down to more specific. I personally wouldn't argue with that, except not everybody's on AWS, but... Okay, so AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or DigitalOcean or SoftLayer or Oracle or Packet. If I thought about this, probably could do 20 more. IBM. IBM. (laughs) That's why I said SoftLayer. Oh, right, right. They all practice in the physical diversity. They all have different regions that you can deploy software and whether it be data locality, but also for data protection. If you're thinking about creating a plan for this, this would be something you would think about. Where does my data rest? What could happen to that data? Building could actually just fall over onto itself. All the hard drives are gone. What do I do? So you're saying that replication is a form of backup. I'm actually saying way more than that. Before you even think about things when it comes to disaster recovery, you have to define what a disaster is. Some applications can actually run out of multiple physical locations. Let's go back to my AWS example because it's everywhere and everyone understands how AWS works at a high level. Sometimes people are running things out of US East 1 and US West 2. And they can run both of the applications. And the reason they can do that is because the individual transactions of whatever they're doing don't need to talk to one another. So they can actually just run the sites out of other places. To your point, when you talk about now, you have the issue where maybe you're doing inventory management because you have a large store and you're running it out of multiple countries. So you're in the EU and you're somewhere on APAC as well. What do you do about that? Well, there's a couple of ways that I could think about how we would do that. We could actually just have all the database connections go back to one single main service. And then what we could do with that main service is that we could have it replicated in the local place, and then we can have it replicated in a remote place too. So if the local place blows up, at least you can point all of the other sites back to this one. And that's the simplest way. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I don't like acronyms all that much, but disaster recovery has two of my favorite ones, and they're called RPO and RTO. And really what it comes down to is 
you need to think about when you have a disaster, no matter what that disaster is or how you define it, you have RTO. Basically, it's the time that you can be down before there's a huge issue. And then you have something called RPO, which is without going into all the names, is how far you can go since your last backup before you have business problems. So just thinking about those things is how we should think about our back our disaster recovery. And it's all based on how your business works or how your project works and how long you can be down and how much data you have. Which goes to what Olive was saying. Please spell out to us what RTO and RPO stand for. I'm going to look them up real quick because I literally pushed those acronym meanings out. I just know what they mean. I think it's a recovery time objective and recovery data objective. Yeah, I don't know what the P stands for, but it is for data. Protection. Recovery. So it's the, the recovery uh, point. Yes, that's what it is. And it is the recovery point objective, RPO, and recovery time objective, RTO. And you can tell that I've spent a lot of time in enterprise because we don't even define words. The acronym means what it is. And you don't even know what the acronym stands for anymore. How far back in terms of data can we go that we're still okay? And how far back in time can we be down, basically, until we're okay? It is true, though, and as Josh was saying, some teams or companies or products, especially companies that are starting their journey, the cloud-native journey, they don't have a backup because there are many complicated things to deal with. And backup is super complicated. I mean, disaster recovery strategy, doing that is not trivial. But shouldn't you like, start with that or at least because it is so complex. It's puzzling to me when people say, I don't have a, that kind of a strategy. And maybe just like what Brian was saying, by utilizing, spreading out your data through regions, that is a strategy in itself. And there's more to it. Yeah, I think I oversimplified too much. Disaster recovery could theoretically be anything, I suppose. They're going back to what you were saying, Brian, the recovery aspect of it. Like recovery for some of the customers I work with is literally to stand up a brand new cluster, whatever that cluster is, a cluster that is their platform, and then redeploy all the applications on top of it. And that is a recovery strategy. It might not be the most elegant and it might make assumptions about the apps that run on it, but it is a recovery strategy that's somewhat simple, simple to kind of conceptualize and get started with, right? I think a lot of the customers that I work with and when they're first getting their bearings with distributed system of sorts, they're a lot more concerned about solving for high availability, which is what you just said, Carlicia, where we're spreading across maybe multiple sites. There's a notion of different parts of the world, but there's also the idea of like what I think Amazon has coined availability zone. So making sure if there is a disaster, we are somewhat resilient to that disaster, like Brian was saying with moving connections over and so on. And then once we've done high availability somewhat well, depending on the workloads that are running, we might try to get a more fancy recovery solution in place. One that's not just rebuild everything and redeploy, right? Because the downtime might not be acceptable. I'm actually going to give some advice to all the people out there who might be listening to this and, and thinking about disaster recovery. First of all, all that complex stuff, that book you read, forget about it. And not because you don't need to know, it's because you should only think about what's in scope at any given time. When you're starting an application, and let's say I'm actually making a huge assumption that you're using someone else's cloud, you're using public cloud. Whenever you're in your data center, there's a different problem. But whenever you're using public cloud, think about what you already have. All the major public clouds had a, a durable object storage. 
And with many nines of durability and then fewer nines, but still a lot of nines of availability too. The canonical example there is S3. When you're designing your applications and you know that you're going to have disaster issues, realize that S3 is almost always going to be there unless, you know, it was 2017 and it goes down or the other two failures that it had. But pretty much it will be there. So think about how do I get that data into S3? And I'm just saying you can use it for storage. It's fairly cheap for how much storage you can get. You can make sure it's encrypted and using IAM you can definitely make sure that people who have the right privileges can see it. And the same goes with Azure and the same goes with Google. So that's the first phase. The second phase is that now you're gonna say, well, I wanna use a relational database. Well, once again, use your cloud provider. All the major cloud providers have great relational databases and actually key value stores as well. And the neat thing about them is you can actually set them up sometimes to run in a whole region. You can set them up to do automated backups. So at least the minimum that you have, you actually use your cloud provider for what it's valuable for. Now, if you're not using a cloud provider and you're doing it on premise, I'm going to tell you the simple answer here is I hope you have a little bit of money because you're going to have to pay somebody, either one of our Kubernetes architects, or you're going to pay somebody else to do it. There's no easy button for this kind of solution. Just for this little mini rant, I'm going to leave everyone with the biggest piece of advice, the best piece of advice that I can ever leave you if you're running relational databases. If you are running a relational database, whether it be Postgres, MySQL, you know, Aurora, have it replicated. But here's the kicker. Have another replica that you delay and make it delay 10 minutes, 15 minutes, not much longer than that. Because what's going to happen, especially in a young company, especially if you're using Rails or something like that, you're going to have somebody who is going to have access to production because you're a small company, you haven't really federated this out yet, who is going to drop your main database table. They're just going to do it and it's going to happen and you're going to panic. If you have it in a replica, that database is gone in a replica. You have a 10 minute delayed replica. You got 10 minutes to figure it out before the world ends. And hopefully somebody deletes the master database. You're going to know pretty quickly and you can just cut that replica out, pull that other one over. I'm not going to say where I learned this trick. We had to employ it multiple times and it saved our butts multiple times. So that's my favorite thing to share. So is that replica on a separate system? It was on a separate system. So I actually won't say because it'll be telling on who did it. Let's say that it was physically separate from the other one in a different location as well. I think we've all been there. We've all deleted something that maybe... I'm not going to tell who did it. It was me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it definitely wasn't me. So we mentioned HA. Would the panel think that there's now a slightly inverse relationship between the amount of HA that you architect for versus the disaster recovery plan that you have to implement on the back of that. So the more you architect in around HA, like the less you architect or plan for DR, not eliminating point. either of them. I see it more. I mean, it used to be 15 years it, ago. Sorry, HA, we're talking about high availability. We didn't think about high availability. A lot of sites were hosted. This is really before you had public cloud and a lot of people were hosting things on web hosts or they're hosting themselves. Even if you were a company who had like a big Equinix or level three, you probably didn't have two facilities at two different Equinixes or level three, which probably it is had one big cage and you just had diversity in the systems in there. We found people had these huge tape backups and we were very diligent about swapping their tapes out. And one thing we did is we made sure that we had lots of practice of bringing this huge system down because we assumed that the database would die and, you know, we would just spend the few hours bringing it back up. 
or days. Now with high availability, we can architect systems where that is less of a problem because we can run more things that manage our data. And then we can also do high availability in the back end on the database side too. We can do things like multi-writes and multi-reads. So we can actually write our data in multiple places. And what we find when we do this is that the loss of a single database or a slice of processing slash web host just means that our service is degraded, which means we don't really have a disaster at this point. And we are trying to avoid disasters. I think on that point, like the way I've always thought about it, and I'll admit this is super overly simplified, but like successful high availability or HA could make your need to perform disaster recovery less likely. Can, maybe, <laughs> right? It's possible. Also realize that everybody's not running public cloud. And in that case, well, you can still back your stuff up to public cloud, even if you're not running public cloud. There are still people out there who are running big tape arrays. And I've seen them. I've seen tape arrays that are wider. I mean, I'm sitting at an 80 inch wide table, bigger than this table with robotic arms and tapes that were this big. And you had to make sure that you got the tapes right for that particular day doing your rotation. I guess what I'm saying is that there's a balance. HA can high availability if you're doing it, if you're doing it in a truly highly available way, you can miss whole classes of disaster. But I'm not saying that you will not have disaster because if that was the case, we wouldn't be having a discussion right now. So I'd like to move the conversation just a little bit to more cloud native. You're running on Kubernetes. What should you think about for disaster recovery? What are the types of disasters we have? How can we recover from them? Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind, I was actually reading the Kubernetes best practices book last night because I just got a Riley membership. So awesome, really cool book. And one of the things that they had recommended early on, which I thought was a really good call out, is that since Kubernetes is a declarative system, where we write these manifests that describe the desired state of our application and how it should run, recommending that we make sure to keep that declarative state in source control, right? Just like we would our code, so that if something were to go wrong, it is somewhat more trivial to redeploy the application should we need to recover. Now that does assume we're not worried about like data and things like that, but it is a good call out, I think. I think the book made a good call out. And that sort of declarative system and being able to bring your systems back up to the exact way they were before, kind of in itself, you know, adds comfort to the whole notion that they could be a disaster. And if there was, we can spin it back up relatively quickly. And that's back from the days of automation where the guys originally, you know, I came from Red Hat, so folk at Ansible were kind of trying to do like the, you know, infrastructure as a code, being able to deploy, redeploy, redeploy in the exact same manner as the previous installation. Because I've been in this game a long time now and I've spend a lot of time working with processes in around building physical servers, that process would get handed over to lots of different teams. And it was a huge thing to build these things, to get one of these things built and signed off because it literally had to pass through the different teams to do their own different bits of things. So the idea that you would get a language that had the functionality that suited the needs of all those different teams so the storage team could automate their piece, which they were doing, it just wasn't interacted with any of the other teams. And the network people would automate theirs and the application install people would do their bit and the, the server OS people would do their bit. Having a process that could tie those teams together in terms of a language, so the Ansible, Puppet Chef, those kind of things tend to try to unite those teams in that you can all do your automation, but we have a tool that can take that code and run it as one system end to end. And at the end of that, you get an up and running system. 
And if you run it again, you get other systems that's exactly the same as the previous one. If you run it again, you get another one. So, you know, reducing the time to build these things plays very importantly into this space. You know, disaster is only disaster if it, in terms of time because things break all the time, right? So it's how that affects you and how quickly you can recover. If you can recover in like seconds, in minutes, and it hasn't affected your business at all, then was it even really a disaster? You know, so the time it takes you to recover, to build your things back is key. And all that automation and then leading on to Kubernetes, which is the next step, I think, this whole declarative, um, self-healing and implementing the desired state on a regular basis really plays well into this space. But so that makes me think, I don't completely understand because I'm not out there architecting people's systems. The one thing that I do is building this backup tool, which happens to be for Kubernetes. So I don't completely get the limitations and use cases, but my question is, is it enough to have the declarations of how your infrastructure should be in source control because what if you're running applications on that platform and your applications are interacting with that platform and changing the state of that platform? Is that not something that happens? I mean, of course, is ideally having those declarations in source control, of course, is a great backup. But don't you also want to back up the changes to states as they keep happening? Yeah, of course. That has been used for a long time. That's how replication works, literally. You take the change and you push it over the wire and it gets applied to the remote system. The problem is, is that there isn't just one way to do this because if you do only transaction-based, if you only do the changes, you need a good base to start with because you have to apply those changes to something. So how do you get that? How do you get that piece? And I'm not asking you to answer that. It's just something to think about. I think you've hit a fatal flaw too, Carly said, like what that simplified, just like habit and source control model kind of falls over, right? And I think having that declarative kind of stamped out, this is the ideal nature of the world for this deployment and source control has benefits beyond just that of disaster recovery scenarios, right? And for stateless applications, especially like we talked about in a previous podcast, it can actually be all you need potentially, which is, which is so great. Like move your CI system over to cluster B, boom, you're back up and running. That's, that's really neat. But a lot of our customers we work with, once we get them to a point where they're at that stage, they then go, well, what about like all these persistent volumes, which by the way, is just like a volume on a computer. That's a Kubernetes term, but like, what about all these parts on my disk that I don't want to lose if I lose my cluster, right? And that it totally feeds into why tools like the one you work on are so helpful. And maybe, I don't know if now would be a good time, but maybe Carly, so you could expand on that tool what it tries to solve for. I want to back up a little though. So let's put aside stateful workloads and volumes in databases. I was talking about the infrastructure itself, the state of the infrastructure. I mean, is it not common, and I don't know the answer to this, I might be completely off. Is it not common for you to develop a cloud native application that is changing the state of the infrastructure? Or is this something that's not good to do? It's possible that you can write applications that can change infrastructure, but think about that. What happens when you have bad code we all have bad code. So a lot of people like to separate those two things. You can still have infrastructure as code, but it's separated from the application itself. And that's just to protect you know, your app people from your not app people and vice versa. And a lot of that is being handled through systems that people are writing right now. So you have Ansible from IBM. You have things like HashiCorp and all the things that they're doing. They have their hosted thing. They have their on-premise thing. They have their 
local thing. People are looking at that problem. The good thing is that that problem hasn't been solved. I guess it's good and bad at the same time because it hasn't been solved. So someone can solve it better. But the bad thing is that if you're looking for good infrastructure as code software, that has not been solved yet. I think if we're talking about containerized applications, I think if there was systems that interacted or affected or changed the infrastructure, they would be separate from the applications. As you were saying, Brian, you just expanded a little bit. It would be a containerized or sandboxed processes that were running, you know, separate to the main application. So, you know, you're separating out what's actually running and doing function in terms of application versus systems that have to edit that infrastructure first before that main application runs. So they're two separate things. And if you had to restore the infrastructure back to the way it was without rebuilding it, but perhaps have a system whereby if you have something editing the infrastructure, you would always have something that would edit it back. If you have the process that runs to stop something, you would also have a process that started something. If you're trying to design your applications and if it needs to interact with other things, then that application design should include the consideration of, you know, what do I need to do to interact with the infrastructure? And if I'm doing something Left-wise, I have to do the opposite and equal reaction right-wise to have an effectively clean application. That's the kind of stuff I've seen anyway. I think it maybe even folds into a whole other topic that maybe we can even cover on another podcast, which is like the notion of the concern of mutating infrastructure, right? And if you have a ton of hands in those cookie jars and they're like changing things all over the place, like you're losing that potential single source of declarative truth even, right? It just could become very complicated. And I think maybe to the crux of your original point, Curly, so hopefully I'm not super off. If that is happening a lot, I think it could actually make recovery more complicated. Or maybe recovery is not the way to put it, but recreating the infrastructure, if that makes sense. Your infrastructure should be deterministic. And that's why I said you could. And I know we talked about this before, about having applications modify infrastructure. But think about that. Can and should are two different things. And if you have it with happen within your application due to input of any kind, then you're no longer deterministic unless you can figure out what that input's going to be. So um, be very careful about that. And that's why people split infrastructure as code from their other code. And you can still have CI, continuous integration, and continuous delivery slash deployment for both but they're on different pipelines with different release metrics and different monitoring and different validation to make sure they work correctly. You know, application design plays a very important role now, especially in terms of the cloud native architectures where we're talking a lot about microservices. A lot of companies are looking to re-architect their applications. And so maybe mistakes that were made in the past, or maybe not mistakes is perhaps a strong word, but maybe things that were allowed in the past perhaps are not best practices going forward. If we're kind of, be, if we're looking to be able to run things independently of each other and they're, you know, by definition, applications independent of the infrastructure, that should be factored in into the architecture of those applications going forward. Josh asked me to talk a little bit about Valero. I will touch up on it quickly. Well, first of all, I would love to have a whole show just about infrastructure, a code, GitOps. Maybe that would be two episodes. But... So Valero doesn't do any backup of the infrastructure itself. It works at the Kubernetes level. So we backup the Kubernetes clusters, including the volumes. So if you have any sort of stateful app attached to a pod, that can get backed up as well. And if you want to restore that to even a different service provider than the one you backed up from. We have a Rastic plugin that you can use. It's embedded in the Valero tool. 
So you can do that using this plugin. There are a few really cool things that I think that I find really cool about Valero is uh, one, you can do selective backups, which really, really don't recommend. We recommend you always backup everything, but you can do selective restores. So that would be, if you don't need to restore a whole cluster, why would you do it? You can just do parts of it. And it's super simple to use. Why would you not have a backup? Because this is ridiculously simple. You do it through a command line and we have a scheduler. So you can just put your backup on schedule. You determine the expiration data of each backup. A lot of neat and simple features and we are actively developing things all the time. Valera is not the only one. So it would be fair to mention, and I'm not super well-versed on all the tools out there, but etcd itself has a backup tool. I'm not familiar with any, any of these other tools. So one thing to highlight is that we do everything through the Kubernetes API. That's, for example, one reason why we can do selective backup or restores. And yes, you can backup etcd completely yourself, but you have to backup the whole thing. And if you're on a managed service, you wouldn't be able to do that because you just wouldn't have access. So other tools like use the backup tool that SED offers or your service provider. PX Motion, not sure what it says. I'm reading documentation here. There is this K10 from Kasten Canister. I haven't used any of these tools and uh, there might be more. I just want to say Valero, the last customer I, was, I worked on, they wanted to use Valero in its capacity to be able to back up a whole cluster and then restore that whole cluster on a different cloud provider, as you mentioned. So they weren't sort of using it as, well, they were using it as backup, but their primary function was that they wanted to populate the cluster as it was on a brand new cloud provider. Yeah, it's a migration. So one thing that, like I said, Valero does is backup the cluster, like all the Kubernetes objects. Because why would we want to do that? Because if you're declaring, like someone explained to everybody who's listening, including myself, some people bring this up and they say, well, I don't need to back up the Kubernetes objects if I have, if all of that is declared and I have that declaration in source control. So if something happens, I can just do it again. Untrue. Because just for any given Kubernetes object, there is the configuration that you created. So let's say if you're creating deployment, you need spec replicas, you need the spec templates, you need labels and selectors. But if you actually go and pull down that object afterwards, what you'll see is there's other things inside of that object. So if you didn't specify any replicas, you get the defaults or other things you get the defaults for. You don't want to have a lossy backup and restore because then you get yourself into a place where if I go back this thing up and then I restore it to a different cluster to actually test it out to see if it works, it'll be different. So just keep that in mind whenever you're, when you're doing that. I think it just comes down to knowing exactly what Brian just said. Because there certainly are times where when I'm working with a customer, they're just such a simple use case that the notion of redeploying the application and potentially losing some of those factors that may have mutated over time, like they just shrug to it and go whatever, right? It is so awesome that tools like Valero and, and other tools are bridging that gap. And I think to a point that Olive made, like not only just backing that stuff up and capturing its state as it was in the cluster, but providing us with like a good way to like section out one namespace or one group of applications and just move those potentially over and, and so on. So yeah, it just kind of comes to knowing what exactly are you going to have to solve for and then how complex your solution should be. Yeah, so we're getting towards the end and I want to make sure that we talked about testing your backups. 
because that's a popular thing here. People take backups. I've done my backups, whether I've jumped to S3 or I have Valero dumping to S3 or I have some other method that is an invalid backup. It's not valid until someone comes and takes that backup, restores it somewhere else, and actually verifies that it works because there will be nothing worse than having yourself in a situation where you need a backup and you're in some kind of disaster, whether it's small or large, and going to find out that, oh my gosh, we didn't even back up the important thing. That is so true. I have only been in this backup world for a minute, but I, I mean, I've needed to back up things before. I don't think I've learned this concept after coming here. I think I've known this concept. It just became stronger in my mind. So I always tell people, if you haven't done a restore, you don't have a backup. One thing I love to add on to that concept too is having my customers run like fire drills if they're open to it. So effectively like having a list of potential terrible things that can happen from losing a cluster to just like losing an important component, right? And then like one person on the team, let's say once a week or once a month, depending on their tolerance, just chooses something from that list and does it. Not in production, but does it, right? And it gives you the opportunity to test everything end to end. Like, did your alerting fire off? When you did restore to your points, was the backup valid? Did the application come back online? So it's kind of a lot of like semi-fun, using the word fun loosely there, fun ways that you can approach it. And it really is a good way to kind of stress test. I do have one small follow-up on that. When you're doing backups, and no matter how you're doing them, you got to think about your strategy and then how long you keep data. I mean, whether it's due to regulation or just physical space and it costs money. So you just don't back up yesterday and then you back up again, you know, back up every day and keep the last eight days. And then like old school, we would actually then have a full backup and we would keep that for a while just in case because you never know. Good points too, yeah. I think a lot of what we said goes to what you was Olive, I think, who said at first, you have to understand your needs. Yeah. yeah, just which bits have different varying degrees of importance in terms of application functionality for your end user. So which bits are absolutely critical and which bits you know, can buy you a little bit more time to recover. Yeah, and that would definitely vary from product to product. As we are getting into this idea of ephemeral clusters and automation and we're getting really good at automating things and bringing things back up, is it possible that we get to a point where... We don't even talk about disasters anymore. You just have to roll, you know, bring up this cluster or this system and it doesn't even matter why. It is, hey, something caused that. So we're not going to talk about disasters because what I'm thinking is in the past, in a, like a long, long time ago, or maybe not so long time ago, when I was working with applications and there was a disaster, it was a disaster because it felt like a disaster. Like somebody had to go in manually and find out what happened and what to fix and fix it manually. It was complete chaos and stress. Now, if things just like keep rolling and it's automated, something goes down, you bring it back up. You know what I mean? It's like uh, maybe it won't matter why. And are we going to talk about this in terms of it was a disaster? Like it doesn't even matter what. What caused it? Maybe it was a plan. A recovery from a disaster wouldn't look any different than a planned update, for example. I think we're going to get to a place, and I don't know whether we're five years away or 10 years away or 20 years away, we're a place where we won't have the same class of disasters that we have now. And think about where we've come over the past 20 years. Over the past 20 years, we basically look at hardware in Iraq as, as replaceable. I can think about 1988, 1999, and 2000, we would rack a whole bunch of servers, and that server would be special. 
And now at these scales, we don't even care about that anymore. We just, when a server goes away, we have 50 more that look just like it. And the reason we were able to do that across large platforms is because of Linux. And now with Kubernetes, and if Kubernetes keeps on going in the same trajectory, we're going to basically codify these patterns that that makes hardware loss not a thing. We don't really care. If you lose a server, you have 50 more nodes that look just like it. And we're going to start having the software. The software will be always available. Think about like with Google Spanner. Google Spanner is multi-location and it can lose nodes and it doesn't lose data. And it's relational as well. And that's what CockroachDB is like that as well. It's modeled after Spanner. And we're going to get to the place where this kind of technology is available for everyone. And we're going to see that we're not going to have these kinds of disasters that we're having now. I think what we'll have now is bigger distributed systems things where we have timing issues and things like that and leader election issues. But I think the old school stuff can be phased out over the, at least over the next computing generation. It's maybe more around architectures these days, you know, application designers and infrastructure architects in the container space and with Kubernetes orchestrating and maintaining your desired state. It's more if you're thinking that things will fail and that's okay because it'll be put back to the way it was before. And so, you know, the concept of something stopping, you know, in mid run is not so scary anymore because it will be get put back to its state. Maybe you might need to investigate if it keeps stopping and starting and Kubernetes keeps bringing it back. So the system is actually still fully functional in terms of end users, but as you as the operator might need to investigate why that's so. But the actual end point is still that your application is still up and running. So, you know, things fail and it's okay. Maybe, and that's maybe a, a thing that's changed from maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. This was a great conversation. I want to thank everybody, Olive Power, Josh Russell, Brian Lyles, and I'm Kalisa Campos signing up. Make sure to subscribe. This was episode eight, and we'll be back next week. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at the Podlets and on the Podlets.io website. That is the Podlets all together where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Subscribe.